Podcast from political blog The Groucho Tendency. The experience of two members of parliament can never be entirely the same. They come from different parts of the country, they represent different political parties, and deal with people from different walks of life. Hello and welcome to GNT, the politics podcast from the Groucho Tendency. My name is Mike Indian, here with the second of our recess specials now, and I'm delighted today to be joined by David Linden, MP for Glasgow East and a member of the SNP. How are you, David? I'm very well, thanks, mate. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute joy to be with you. Well, thank you very much for coming on, David. And it's it's great to have you on for the second of these recess specials here. So I just wanted to start off by asking you, we're at the end of a very unusual political year. We've had at Westminster a change of prime minister, a change of government, a general election, COVID-19. What are your thoughts as we've kind of gone into the summer recess now? Have you had finally had a chance to, to, draw, to draw breath really after the last 12 months? I, I must be honest, I, mean, I, I don't feel like I've had a chance to draw breath since 2017 <laughs> when I was elected. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so I mean, it's bizarre, Mike. I mean, I turned 30 in May, and I must confess that by the time we went into recess, I felt I was like 50 or 60. <laughs> um, politically, people people go through their you know their time in Parliament, and you know they'll never they'll never experience a recession, they'll never experience a pandemic. And in my three years there, we've had Brexit, we've had a global pandemic, we're now kind of in the, the heat of this almost kind of economic depression. And, and so it's just in such a tumultuous time. And I was reflecting to some colleagues recently. I mean, it, you know, when we went into the election campaign in, in December, and I was seeking re-election for a hugely marginal seat, I remember thinking to myself, you know, what, what are going to be the big political issues? Because obviously, you know, we've got Brexit, and you know, Brexit, it looks like inevitable is going to happen now as a result of a majority Tory government. And so if you genuinely, you know, if you'd asked me kind of after the general election in December, what would be the big issue that MPs will be talking about for the next five, ten years, I would have thought it was going to be climate change. And so I was all geared up for thinking, right, this is going to be the climate parliament and people were concerned about the environment. I'll give you an example. I mean, I've got a school in my constituency. The kids do phenomenal work trying to kind of raise awareness of plastics in the oceans. And there was a point last year, you know, politically, when everybody was talking about, you know, tackling the scourge of plastic and all this kind of thing. And now fast forward on eight months, and as a result of COVID-19, people can't get enough plastic. We want plastic for our PPE, we want plastic for our desk separators, we want plastic for the, 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 the beer garden glasses we use. So I think the thing that I've learned is that, you know, politics is just, you know, in, in so much flux at the moment. And the thing that I was really reflecting on, particularly as we went into recess, was that the last few weeks in the run-up to recess, a lot of people were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And it just feels like that has absolutely fallen off the agenda now. And I think that says more about the kind of, you know, the, the speed at which politics is moving, which is, is just fascinating. It's strange, isn't it? Because obviously there have only been a couple of events that have really moved COVID-19 off of the front pages. Black Lives Matter was obviously, I think, the first big one that's happened. And then we had the tragic events in the day before we record this in, in Beirut with the, yeah. with the explosion. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the climate parliament there as well. Obviously, it's just about 12 months since we had the the UK Parliament made the landmark commitment to fully decarbonise the economy by, by 2050. Obviously, Scotland is pursuing a very distinct agenda there with Nicola Sturgeon's SNP 
government and office there. Do you think there is scope to get this back on the agenda quickly or is the pandemic kind of sucking a lot of the energy away from that topic and other debates at the moment? I think one of the things that we as politicians have got to learn to do is to be able to focus on more than one issue. Um, Certainly my feeling as a result of being in that 2017 to 2019 parliament was that it felt like politicians only had the capacity, only had the, the kind of bandwidth to really focus on Brexit. And, you know, I clearly, as an SNP politician, have my views on Brexit. I don't think it's a particularly good idea. I think it will rob young people in particular of opportunities. But, you know, if, if we're serious as politicians about talking about the future of young people, then we need to consider what kind of planet we're going to leave them in the future. And the reality is, if we ignore the climate emergency and don't take substantive action on that, then you know, we've kind of been largely fiddling while Rome burns. Um, so I think politicians have got to learn to be able to deal with more than one issue at a time. And one of the things that I felt with that 17 to 19 parliament is that we just became so consumed by Brexit, we ignored so many of these issues. And I think we probably did so at our peril. So you're just over three years now, and you're into a fourth year now as a member of parliament, but you've you've had quite an extraordinary journey so far, because obviously in the 2017 election, you were the, the only new SNP MP from that intake at that time. And you've seen the party's fortunes, obviously, again, recover at Westminster. But of course, that's really been very distinct compared to what's been happening north of the border with the Scottish government. And we're this summer, the SNP are polling way ahead in, ahead of next year's Holyrood elections. You've got quite a unique position in your party in that you're one of the whips. You how, From that sort of position, without betraying any confidences, how do you think your, your colleagues have been finding the changes that COVID-19 has placed on their work as Westminster parliamentarians? I mean, certainly my colleagues are, are doing a sterling job. I think they are kind of realising that there's two sides to this. I mean, obviously, the, the, the public health response is, is an involved issue. That's that's for, for Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish government. And we're absolutely right behind her as, as she takes that action. And you know, we've seen very definitive action today in Aberdeen. But there's no doubt that the, the economic aspect of COVID-19 has certainly shone a light on the work the SNP MPs are doing you know, we want to see an extension of the furlough scheme. We want to make sure that those millions of people who've been left out are actually included in financial support. So there's certainly been no shortage of work for, for members of the, the SNP's Westminster team to do. And we were just trying to go on to that job as best as possible. But I mean, from a purely practical point of view, Mike, I mean, I, I've obviously been a politician myself for, for three years, but, you know, I, I've maybe about 10, 11 years working for members of the European Parliament, Scottish Parliament and Westminster Parliament. And I have never seen the level of casework and the level of constituency work, because I've seen uh, since we went into lockdown in March. And, you know, I, I think I, I would speak for, for all MPs when I say, you know, we, we really do pay tribute to our constituency teams who have just been phenomenal uh, in trying to respond to that effort. But, I mean, the, the pressure that's been on us has, has been enorm- enormous. And if you consider that, you're, you know, your healthcare system's under extreme pressure, if you consider that children aren't in school, if you consider that, you know, the, the, the economy's been tanking. Any of those issues in and of themselves would be quite a difficult thing to deal with. But to have all three going on at the one time has just been like nothing I've certainly ever experienced and probably will never experience again. How have you been dividing your time, say, the last sort of six months or so? Because obviously Scottish parliamentarians, particularly SNP parliamentarians, you have that bit further to travel yeah. to London. Um, do you do the normal divide of, say, four days in Westminster and then three in the three days in the constituency normally? Or has, is it, do you try for a, a different balance at all? So from my point of view, I'm a, a kind of healthy, fit, young 30-year-old man. I don't have any underlying health conditions and uh, I don't have anybody around about me that's shielding. Um, not all of my colleagues are in that position. And so in a kind of act of solidarity, we, we took a decision as an SNP group that those who, who couldn't travel to Parliament would participate in the virtual Parliament. And 
for those of us that, that had to be there because clearly there are still bill committees, there are still statutory instruments uh, committees that, that have got to be covered. So I, I've certainly, I've, I've been there um, every week since we went back uh, after the the kind of the virtual parliament stopped and I've, I've just been getting on with doing my job. But it, it's been it's been a real challenge. I mean, being a Scottish MP at the best of times is challenging. I've got a, a 750 mile round trip every single week. I'm on a plane or a train every three or four days. Now, that's just something that you factor into the price of, of doing this job. But it's certainly been very challenging. But I, I think it's really important that, that we as politicians don't kind of get a little violin out and say, you know, poor us. The reality is that we are not kind of doctors, nurses, hospital cleaners and caterers who are working in the absolute kind of height of this pandemic. So, I mean, they're, they're the real heroes. We're just the, the guys that are trying to go on with the job and make sure they get support they need. Obviously, it, it, we're in... I want to say unprecedented because that word is overused. Unusual times in at the moment. From the last few years, though, you, you, that you've been uh, in Parliament, what would a normal summer recess entail for you? How would this sort of period of time of the year look for you? What what sort of things would you would you be doing? It certainly. I mean, you're absolutely right, Mike. It's it's been very very different in terms of how we would conduct summer recess. So, I mean, I I genuinely, I mean, it's my favourite time of the year. I, I'm not somebody who naturally enjoys being in Westminster. Here, I'm a Scottish Nationalist MP. I don't want to be there. I do my job, but my, my preference is to be in my constituency. I get quite a buzz out of the idea of kind of walking up and down the local high street. People know who I am. They come up and talk to me, tell me their problems. But one of the things that I really, really enjoy doing and I'm unable to do this year is something called In Your Shoes. And so for a week over the course of the summer, um, I'll do a different job every single day alongside my constituents. And basically what we do is we ask the, the people who live in my constituency to nominate different jobs for me to do. So they'll come up with a short list of maybe 20 and then local people put it to a vote as to whether I go and work as a kind of a cleaner, working in a food bank, working as a builder, a whole host of issues like that. And it's a really good opportunity to get out and kind of get out of the shoes of being an MP and kind of tweeting things like delighted to and welcome to all the kind of stuff that MPs generally do and actually go out and work in a care home for a, for a 12-hour shift. And in my three years of doing this job, that has been by far the most fulfilling thing that I've done. And I'm really sad not to be doing that this year. In addition to that, there's also things like, you know, community gala days and fets. The reality is I've got a very, very small urban constituency, but lots of different communities. So probably over the course of a year, I'll have maybe 20 gala days. And the reality is the gala days are all pretty much the same. People go along, the MP stands behind a bit of wood, people get some wet sponges and throw it at them and probably find it a very cathartic process. But again, COVID-19 means that a lot of these things won't happen. So in reality, the vast majority of my recess is spent in front of my computer doing endless Zoom meetings, which is pretty torturous, but it's disappointing not to be able to get out and about. But there's a reason that we're, we're trying to kind of do as much social distancing as possible, you know. Absolutely. So with you mentioned there are a whole host of activities you, you can get involved in. It sounds to me from what you've said that that is that's a very fulfilling part of the job that obviously the constituency work, especially for someone like yourself who who wants to see, you know, an independent Scotland and to have the, the, the function of a Westminster MP for Glasgow is to be redundant. That's, yeah. that's the bread and butter of you being actually out in the city. Is there anything you've done over the last three years that you feel has been particularly educating and informative and also has, has it given a chance to get people to get to know you in the seat as well because the sort of political history of the area you're in is it's sort of been SNP and Labour vying for contention as you mentioned you won the seat in 2017 by 75 votes you have an increased majority of 5,000 now so obviously people knowing who you are is obviously a real electoral benefit as well but obviously the, it's the job of the MP to represent everybody yeah has there anything is there anything that you've done that's really stood out for you as being 
um, educating, informative? Yeah, so there are definitely a number of things that I've, I've done in my time as an MP that I'm incredibly proud of, you know, nationally, trying to kind of move the debate forward in terms of the parental leave that parents of premature and sick babies get. And that's a subject that's very close to my heart. I've got two children that were born in neonatal care. But I've got to say locally, I think the thing that I've probably enjoyed most has been trying to, to engage with people who, A, don't engage in the political process regularly, and then B, further to that, people who are vehemently opposed to Scottish independence and, and don't like the SNP. I, first and foremost, am a Democrat and, you know, really enjoy the opportunity to, to, to chat to people who, who don't vote for me. And the nature of Scottish politics, because, you know, the, the, the Constitution is such a divisive issue, is that you've got people who, who clearly love the SNP and, and you know, vote SNP, but people who, you know, by and large don't like Scottish independence, it can be quite hostile towards the SNP. And it's been interesting since 2017, you know, the same people will, will email you on, on, on various issues. Uh, and I remember back to 2017 getting these really, really frosty emails from people who clearly didn't vote for me, didn't like my politics, and who are now the people that are sending me Christmas cards and coming along to my surgery. And I don't know whether, <laughs> I don't know whether they did vote for me in December, but I, I take a huge amount of fulfilment and, and satisfaction from the fact that I've been able to engage them uh, in, in kind of a productive way as their MP. So it's no secret that Glasgow East has got one of the lowest electoral turnouts in the United Kingdom. And so anything that we can do to try and get out there, get people excited about the democratic process, that's a good thing. And I'll I'll let you in the secret. I mean, I remember in uh, the election campaign in December, I got a phone call from this uh, elderly couple who were were asking to, to get proxy votes set up. Oh, yeah. um, and I, I, I didn't actually think that there were probably SNP voters, but I was so enthusiastic about the fact that, that this couple were, were, were determined to take part in the democratic process that we got the proxy vote set up for them. Um, in the end, <laughs> they decided they wanted to vote SNP. But, you know, even as a, an MP with a, a marginal seat in the majority of 75, anything that we can do to try and get folk engaged in the democratic process has is, is got to be a good thing because apathy is just a complete cancer in our political system that we need to get rid of. And the, for context, I think at the last election turnout in the seat was about 57%, I believe, and the national yeah. turnout was sort of close to two thirds. How has COVID-19 changed how you've had to operate on a level? I mean, I, I, I understand you have a young family, you're, you're, you'll be based, I'm guessing, from home most of the time rather than in the constituency office. Is it Has it been difficult juggling the different demands? Not necessarily. Um, certainly in the early part of the, the pandemic, I was clearly working from home. We, at the point of recording this, are, are just a few days away from schools going back in Scotland, which uh, we're looking forward to. And I, I've certainly felt that it's, it's untenable for me as a politician to be kind of working from home when I'm asking, you know, teachers, you know, cleaners, catering staff, janitors, clerical staff to go back to work. So for quite some time now, I've been working from my constituency office because uh, I feel that that's the right thing to do and obviously travelling back and forward to, to Westminster. But I, I think the thing that I've, if I'm being truly honest, Mike, the thing that I've probably struggled with is, is not being able to do my surgeries. So obviously MPs have got a long history of doing surgeries on a, a kind of Friday morning when they're back in the constituency it really is the kind of bread and butter politics and the kind of highlight of the week for me. Part of the, the issue is I've got a very high caseload of asylum seekers who are some of the most vulnerable people in this community, people who have fled countries as a result of famine, of war, of sexual violence, of persecution. And, you know, clearly they are not the kind of people that I am, you know, hearing from on Zoom surgeries and telephone surgeries because by and large, you know, there's, there's issues of digital exclusion. So I'm desperate to get back to doing face-to-face surgeries because I'm, truly worried that a lot of these people are, are frankly falling between the cracks. 
I mean, obviously, personal contact and communication are are the bread and butter of, of your of your roles in MP. You you know that the job is a, is a unique one in terms of not just being a legislator, but also being a sort of somewhere between a, a social worker, but also community contact and coordinator as well. Has it been more difficult to press ahead in certain issues? You mentioned asylum cases there. I imagine there will be also things like benefits cases coming across your desk. Is, is Has it been harder to make progress on those? Or have you found that, say, trying to engage with the relevant authorities, they've just been just as responsive, even with the, even with the, sort of the digital distance that we're all having to occupy with at the moment? I mean, certainly it has improved. The earlier part of the pandemic, clearly a lot of organisations, a lot of bodies were just not set up to, to have their staff working from home. And I think, you know, clearly there's going to be a, an inquiry into the whole COVID process. And it's right that that, that, that line, you know, is, is shown in absolutely every aspect of how we've responded to COVID. But I mean, I was, I was very frustrated in the early part of it when there were, you know, members of staff that I was trying to get hold of in kind of government departments who were working from home and weren't set up for, for kind of uh, distance working. But to, to be fair, a lot of that has, has now been ironed out. And, you know, we're, we're getting on with doing the constituency casework and, trying to get results for people but certainly the early part was, was very frustrating there's, there's no doubt about that. On a personal level do you find it quite easy to switch off and relax during the holidays obviously everyone's entitled to time off here as well even even members of parliament you know you guys do have a, a unique role is, is it easy for you personally to switch off and relax? I'll be very honest I find the, the first few days of, of recess just a real challenge because you're, you're going you're 100 miles an hour in parliament you've got 10-15 different things in your diary over the course of the day and then you just have this cliff edge where there, there's nothing after you finish your last surgery, there's just nothing in your diary. And so that, that's quite a difficult thing to adapt to. So in recent years, I think I've tried to kind of taper down my, my diary a little bit as, as we move into recess. But I, I've, I've been doing things like watching kind of One Foot in the Grave. Uh, I've got the, the One Foot in the Grave box set um, at the kind of... Oh, wonderful choice. Um, it, it's a very good choice. Um, and I, I probably behave more like <laughs> Dr. Meldrew now than I've, I probably have ever done. Um, it's quite contagious. Um, but, I mean, things like that. I, I find some of the comedy around about, you know, one foot in the grave, forty tower, keeping up appearances, um, all that kind of stuff oh, is, is definitely the kind of thing that I relax to. You're you're a man after my girlfriend's heart, though. She's a massive keeping up appearances fan. Oh yeah. Well, I, I I've got to say, if I was going on masterminds, probably keeping up appearances would be my special subject. Um, oh, wonderful! I, I do. I'll have to get you and her to have a chat about keeping up appearances. Definitely. Keeping up appearances <laughs> trivia. Is that is that how Scottish people see the English middle classes? I wonder because I wonder if some, some of that um, curtain twitching no, no, is very no, uh, probably not necessarily. No, um, <laughs> that, that is probably not. Um, that's probably not our idea of the the old red wall seats. I've got to tell you that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it's just, that, that kind of era of I, I appreciate that as a, a British a, a kind of a Scottish nationalist talking about kind of British comedy. And there's probably an irony in this, but I mean that that period of, of British comedy and sitcoms was, was just amazing. You've got, as I say, keep up appearances, one foot in the grave, faulty towers. All of it was done without any kind of swearing or kind of really particularly coarse behaviour. It, it was definitely an absolute golden era in terms of what was produced back then, and I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying it at, at the moment. Oh, I can't. I I I completely agree. I, I personally, I've always been a really big fan of, a big fan of Blackadder. Yeah. Uh, myself, with 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 the exception, I should say, of the rather crass um, Scottish um, impersonation Rowan Atkinson does in Blackadder season three for Macadder. I think I always thought that was a, that was a bit bit wide of the mark. Well, I mean, it's it's no secret if you if you look at my name in Google, it's no secret that people have had difficulty understanding my accent and my voice and impersonation. <laughs> so uh, I've got to say, Rowan Atkinson's definitely not the worst that I've had. 
I just wanted to. We're getting towards the end now. I just want to 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 round off just just by touching on some topical affairs. So we mentioned the day we record this. There's been a some local lockdown restrictions imposed in Aberdeen. Now, Nicola Sturgeon has been a very prominent presence, arguably, I think, with more consistent messaging than the UK government has managed. She's still doing daily press conferences, for example. Obviously, we're all hoping things can get back to normal. Are, are you worried about lockdown restrictions in being reimposed in Glasgow? Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but I can imagine a lot of businesses in your area would be worried about measures being put in place by the Scottish government that would hurt them during the economic recovery. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've been reflecting on over the course of the day. You know, as, as politicians, we have a, a duty to, to protect people in terms of the public health. And uh, some of the indications that we saw coming out of Aberdeen and some of the, particularly some of the images of, of you know, people in the pubs and things like that um, was just a bit concerning. And, and so I think that the measures that have been taken in Aberdeen, hopefully short term measures, uh, are, are a kind of preventative measure to make sure that that does not go out of control. Scotland, we have been you know doing magnificent work in terms of trying to keep that that infection rate down. I think we're kind of several weeks now without having any deaths. The, the number of in, in new infections has been very very low. Uh, and, and naturally, as you, as you start to open up the economy, there will be risks associated associated with that. And I think that the, the kind of the small risks that we've seen coming out of Aberdeen, we just want to make sure that we're absolutely closing that down as quickly as possible and not letting it get out of hand because the last thing that businesses need is for coronavirus to return in huge number and to have a, a big, big lockdown that lasts for quite a long period of time. I think that the hope is very much that the Aberdeen situation will be reviewed in a week again uh, to coincide with schools coming back. And if we've managed to get the, the, the virus or under control, then hopefully that those restrictions can be lifted. But as regards my own situation in Glasgow, you know, if if we see that that virus is going out of control, then absolutely I would be supportive of you know a local lockdown being put in place. And I know from speaking to many of the businesses locally, you know, that they're not interested in just profit. Ultimately, they're interested in people making sure people are safe and making sure that we've got good public health. Two quick questions to finish off with. For those people who aren't familiar, the Edinburgh Central selection for the Scottish Parliament elections next year has been an interesting one because you've got two very prominent figures in the party possibly running in contention. Now you've got Angus Robertson, the party's former Westminster leader and deputy leader, seeking to move to Holyrood. And you've also got your colleague Joanna Cherry there. Following the ruling of the SNP's national executive, the nobody can run to be an MP and be an MSP at the same time. Should Joanna Cherry be allowed to run in that selection? Well, look, the, the SNP National Executive Committee, let's not forget, is elected by party members at annual conference. I appreciate that kind of uh, that kind of direct direct link that, that that democracy in political parties is a bit of a novel concept for for some of the, the kind of British parties. But um, <laughs> I, I have a huge amount of respect for for those members who who sit on the NEC and you know have had to take difficult decisions. I've been a bit upset by the the manner in which uh, some of them have been introduced. But ultimately, it is for SNP conference to elect its national executive committee. The national executive committee has has taken its decision, and I think that those of us in the SNP, whether we've got letters before or after our name or whether we're the ordinary activists that are out putting leaflets through the door, I think we're all duty-bound to, to support the NEC and realise that they've been democratically elected. And look, whoever's selected as the, the SNP candidate in Edinburgh Central, I would have a, a word of caution to, to anybody who's looking for, to stand for the SNP in that seat, is that if you, if you look at probably all um, the 70-odd the constituency seats in the Scottish Parliament, Edinburgh Central is one of the most marginal, and it's not between two parties. Um, there's at any one time, there's about four or five parties vying for that seat. And so whoever's the candidate is going to have a great deal of work on their hand to, to, to try and win that for the SNP. But look, whoever the candidate is, I'll be absolutely behind them, uh, wishing them all the best of luck. But 
most importantly, it's up to the, the good members of Edinburgh Central SNP to select who their candidate will be next year, and I hope they win. And you could share some wisdom about holding a marginal seat as well, quite successfully increasing a majority. And uh, uh, well, absolutely. You never stop knocking doors. Um, I made a promise <laughs> um, when I was elected that I would go out door knocking every single week. And I remember a couple of my MP colleagues thinking I was absolutely mad to do that. But it's something that I've, I've pretty much stuck with. Um, and it's, it's actually the best part of the week because so often in this job you can be consumed by what, what, what the gossip is in the, the, the tea room of the Palace of Westminster. Actually, what people are, are genuinely concerned about tends to be a lot different than a bus stop in Shelton Road. Um, one last quick question. Today, Douglas Ross has been elected as the new leader of the Scottish Conservative Party. He's not an MSP. He's a, he's the MP for Moray as well. Quick thoughts on the leader of the second biggest party in the Scottish Parliament now ahead of next um, year's Holyrood elections? Look, we had, uh, I can't remember how many Tory leaders we've had now. I think the last one only lasted about five months. Um, you know, <laughs> look, on a personal basis, I, I got on very well with Douglas Ross. He's a really nice guy. He's got a, a, a young son who quite supportive of when he became a dad. So, so Douglas is, is, is very much kind of a friend of mine at Westminster, but politically he's got his kind of hard work cut out for him because he's essentially having to defend a kind of very unpopular government in, in Westminster that is intent on pushing ahead with Brexit uh, that people in Scotland did not vote for. I think we're seeing, you know, admittedly with opinion polls that support for independence is in the rise. And so I think he's got to learn the the kind of the lessons or the mistakes of the past from Tory leaders who focus exclusively on independence and the whole issue of the union. And perhaps we'll see with this Tory leader him getting on with the day job a little bit and focusing on some of the issues that people in Scotland really care about, which I would suggest is not opposition to a second independence referendum, which polls would suggest is actually quite popular. For, for, for those listeners who may not be familiar, there was a poll out last month for the Sunday Times which showed that 54% of respondents for panel base uh, were supporting Scottish independence in an almost near reversal of the referendum result from 2014. David, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been absolutely fascinating, especially finding out our our shared love of of British sitcoms there as well. Great. Pleasure. Well, thank you very much again for coming on. If you'd like the podcast, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It does help us boost us up the rankings. Liam Kay and I will be back for another political roundup at the start of September. Until then, enjoy your August. If you're staying at home, managing a trip abroad, or even having a staycation, stay safe, stay alert. And I'll see you next time.